Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Splendid Food edition of Slate Money, your guide to the most delicious food of the week. And with us here in... Gowanus, Brooklyn, we have Jordan Weissman. Hello, everybody. Anna Shemansky. Hi again. And coming up on stage <laughs> right now, Mr. Teddy Goff. Big hand for Mr. Teddy Goff, who's... Ah! <laughs> right here. Have a seat, Teddy. Teddy um, is a man of many talents. I've known him for a few years. He helped to launch the amazing franchise that is fusion he also helped to launch the amazing franchise that was barack obama but mostly he he helped to launch the amazing it's a franchise there's only one so far right uh of barack obama there is only one <laughs> he, said, he said was which is why i gave you a look he still is he still he still is barack obama um but yeah black tap um is a burger joint and um instagram sensation uh which is in the West Village, right? Uh, there's a few. The original is in Soho. There's one in the West Village. There's one at 55th. And there's a couple in Dubai. Okay. Wait, Dubai? <laughs> really? Yeah. But how did you make that jump? <laughs> uh, yeah. um, you know, there's, if you've ever, I had a, a layover in Dubai once. I don't know if you've ever 
Uh, Felix Sandler, oh, certainly. Oh, yeah, exactly. No, I mean, there's. It's interesting. There, uh, uh, you know, you go and um, you know, it's like an American mall. I mean, there's an eatery there, and if you walk into the eatery, it looks exactly like the eatery on Twenty Third Street. Okay. Uh, there's Shake Shacks. There's there's everybody. There's also like a Statue of Liberty. I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. so you you are you are in Dubai duty free. If you have a few hours to kill, you can get yourself a black black tap burger, just like the one in Soho. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, so Teddy uh, is is the master of buzz. A quick like show of hands. Um, how many of you guys have heard of Black Tap? All right. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well done. I you know. feel like the people who are not raising their hands have probably seen their product at some point. <laughs> yeah. this is, so we want to talk to you about like about food, how buzz in restaurants is generated. But because because yeah, this is the. Um, this, the, this, this is the big question about restaurants, which the, the first segment which I'm going to ask here in general is, do we actually go to restaurants for the food? Yeah, but so I think... But so just a little bit more. So if, if you haven't, um, if you don't recognize the name Black Tap, again, if you've been on Instagram and, and you, you know, I spend personally a lot of time just staring at food porn and I swear to God, your milkshakes... Your ice cream sundays have shown up more times on my feed, and as a result, so we're that's about them. Right here. <laughs> okay, I'm right here. I can hear you say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you were guys like were like the number two most tweeted about restaurant in is it New York or the country? Of New one? York, New York, in New York. Yeah, because of this. Because of this thing right here, these yeah, giant... largely, yeah. I mean, as we were talking about backstage, we actually have fantastic uh, burgers, but the kind of um, the I think the the aura of the milkshake has kind of subsumed the the brand to some degree. So I want to like, what is the story behind this thing? That is like, I mean, that is like sort of what you guys now have like lines outside of your yeah. restaurant, like or, or your your locations. All of them or are they all like swarmed, or is it just a few? Uh, of them? Yeah, they're uh, they're all pretty swarmed. Um, you know, it's funny because the original concept we started talking about it. Gosh, back in uh, um, uh, 20 sort of around Christmas, 2013, January, February, March of the next year. And the original concept was, it would be this very, you know, it's called black tap because in the original location, there is a black beer tap with 18, I think, um, beers on tap, mostly local, mostly craft. And it was going to be this, you know, sort of, Oh my God, you were like a hipster artisan, quaint experience burger joint. Exactly. So that was the original idea. And you know, and then you went to Dubai. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, and when we opened it, it's, it's, still was that and to some degree it still is i mean it has that look and it's you know the the music is like zeppelin and stones and you know and it's sort of a cool uh place in there and they were all and, and it was supposed to be kind of this ode to the lunch counter i mean uh milkshakes fries burgers counter seating only at first we've since expanded into the basement and then to 55th street and then and what made Dubai. what made you think that you had any particular um ability to open i mean it's not like no one's thought of having a burger and beer joint before, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, for me personally, the whole thing started. I mean, truly, with a joke to a family friend that I said I wanted to quit my job and open up a bar, and he said, um, you know, I, I have some friends who do this kind of thing f- for a living. You might want to talk to them, and I said I, I wasn't you know, serious, but I, okay. Uh, and about 18 months later, Black Tap was born. And, and I'm, I should say, I'm by no means the prime mover behind it. I mean, the real creative um, uh, genius is a guy named Joe Isidori, um, who uh, has, has had a fantastic career as a chef long before uh, but Black wh- Tap. But, when, but, so when you were talking to Joe about this idea, um, are you doing that whole kind of, 
oh my God, I want to own a bar which will have great beers and great burgers and there'll be a neighborhood joint and everyone will feel at home and like that kind of cliche? Or are you actually go, like jumping one step ahead and saying, hey, we can be really big on Instagram? <laughs> Definitely the former. Now, I think for Joe, it might have been the latter. I mean, not, not Instagram per se, but I mean, I think I think Joe saw, you know, franchise potential and growth potential. Um, you know, for me personally, I just thought it'd, it'd be fun. Um, you know, I, like I always think owning a restaurant or a bar is like a, a much uh, lower net worth individuals uh, version of trying to own a sports team. I mean, you know, it's just kind of fun. And you know, you it's funny, you mentioned Obama earlier. In all sincerity, I've had more congratulations and more old friends pop out of the woodwork over black tap than I did over the election and re-election of Barack Obama. I mean, <laughs> like sin sincerely. Um, so, you know, people just find it cool. And, um, and, and to this day, I mean, I, I had like a friend from second grade, um, you know, sort of find out that I was associated with it and contact me on Facebook. So I think for me, it was that. And I think for, for Joe, I mean, Joe, I think had a bigger vision. As so, did, so Joe yeah. wanted to take over the world is sort of, or at least, or at least Dubai, get to Dubai. So <laughs> what, but like, what's the story behind these? Because these have sort of been the secret to your guy. I mean, the burgers are good, like you said, but it's these things, these very, very visually stunning statues of ice cream and you know, like <laughs> yeah. Sour Patch Kids so or whatever. those of you listening along at home, Jordan decides that he needs to talk to the ice cream when he's <laughs> yeah. saying oh, yeah. it's he's so he's compelling. Can't take uh, it it's pulling us in. But yes. yeah, I mean, so like, what's where do they come so from? Was that like all, a conscious thing or like? Uh, they sort of one. Th so they were always milkshakes uh, from the beginning, but they were not as um, statuesque at the beginning. <laughs> and um, Joe's then girlfriend, now wife, um, is a big fan of cotton candy, and I guess at one point asked him to make uh her a milkshake uh, with cotton candy um and he uh as the legend goes uh you know sort of got together with some of the other cooks and you know makes this gigantic again statuesque a milkshake and she loves it and we start um selling not just that but the one with the uh, cookie and the one with the cake and now you know now there's um theme ones for different seasons and, you know, different promotions. You know, it's important. It's, it's funny because I mean, in all sincerity, um, you know, Joe's like a pretty serious chef. At one point he had a, he was a chef at a Michelin starred restaurant. You know, the, the, the idea of this being a really good burger joint with really good burgers and by the way, really good milkshakes that happen to look a certain way, but also taste great was always sort of important to us. But obviously the look is the thing that drives right, the I, I'm, I'm sensation. Just, yeah. I'm just wondering now if a lot of chefs are thinking of Instagram when they're creating their dishes. I mean, is that kind of or what most is... the point is that any chef who isn't right. thinking yeah. of Instagram, given that, like, what is it, 89% of Instagram is pictures of food? <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, of course. And look, I mean, the whole restaurant PR business um, is really kind of built around Instagram and Instagrammers and, you know, these sort of food Instagram people with a few hundred thousand people and getting them in for uh, early tastes and, you know, early looks at the food and all that. So, you know, I can't imagine you... you so, and is that yeah. changing food, do we think? I mean... In I, I, of course, of course. I mean, I think, you know, um, I mean, look at like the, the phenomenon of the tasty video, the, the Buzzfeed, you know, I mean, it, I, I wonder how many people cook these things at home, but I mean, my, I presume that sort of all around the country, there's people, you know, whose home cooking habits are now built around, you know, making like rolls that have smiley faces on, <laughs> right. them and, yeah. you know, and this whole sort of Instagram and Facebook bread, friendly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, but so you're like a social media, like strategist, partly like that is like one of your, so was this, so you have these, you know, sh shakes that or Sundays that look like the Mars factory exploded on them. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I, on behalf of mean. Joe, I object to that, but go on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, and did it just kind of unfold naturally from there or was there like a conscious way you said, okay, here's how we're going to generate 
more buzz off this? How, how it was a little bit of it was a little bit of both. Um, there was uh, to some degree it was organic. Uh, to some degree there were a couple of things that happened. I mean, one of the things that happened uh, in January of 2016, BuzzFeed did a post called something like "New York is New York is going crazy off of these next level milkshakes." And what I always joke about about that post is at the time. I don't know if you'd say New York was going crazy over it, but but after that they started to, and so that there was this crazy fulfilling Buzzfeed exactly. So so uh, that becomes their number one post of the week, and you know I mean like Buzzfeed. Um, I forget. If, I think it was the Today Show, but it might have been Good Morning America. One, you know, then we had morning shows the next day, and then we were off off and running. So I mean, to some degree, you had this product that was Instagram friendly, designed to be delicious and fun, but obviously Instagram friendly. You had the this kind of rocket fuel uh, provided by BuzzFeed, and then uh, I think Today Show, and then you had this kind of organic thing that started around it, where all of a sudden, I mean, I remember I got you know that was just such a fun month, January, February, as this whole thing was starting. At one point, I checked out our. Um, uh, our location tag on Instagram just to see what people were saying. And somebody said, um, the line was too long at Black Tap, so I had to go to get a Cronut instead. And I, that, to me, that was like, you know, that, that, that's like the, you know, that was, that's how you know you've arrived, you know? So I have a, a the, for me, there's like two parallel things going on in the restaurant industry. One is the sort of, well, like the seats merge Jonathan Gold, I have found the most amazing Laotian place in a strip mall in Flushing. Um, you know, and it's, you know, incredibly delicious and you have to get onto the three different subways and five buses to get there. And then the other one is kind of what you're doing, this kind of very visual, punchy, uh, much more accessible. You kind of don't even need to eat it to enjoy it. Um, and or the, you know, the very buzzy restaurants often in hotels where which just like are full of celebrities and everyone goes there to be seen. And then what seems to be, get lost in the middle is what we all generally consider a normal restaurant where you just, you don't need to go to the middle of nowhere and you can just walk in and get a table and have a nice meal and walk out. Like, is is that being sort of squeezed in this kind of weird barbell? I, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I think, uh, I, I think, pro I mean, probably to some degree, but I mean, look, I, I think, you know, hiding under the surface of, um, you know, the meals that you Instagram is probably the six dinners out of seven that you don't Instagram at which you may be home cooked, uh, or maybe, you know, from a diner or a neighborhood restaurant. So, I mean, I think like, obviously there is this, um, increasing desire for all those, you know, all, both sides of that barbell, um, you're talking about, but you know, I, I don't know. I, I think most people don't, um, want a gourmet burger every day, even if it's delicious. And I think most people don't want to go to the strip mall in Queens every day, even if that's, um, that's delicious. And, you know, and I think there is kind of a, a love for, you know, what we consider just good old fashioned American food that doesn't, doesn't exactly go away, even if it kind of, even if the prevalence of it kind of gets chipped out over the years. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day, and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisitions like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year 
by starting your morning with the best one yet every weekday. Follow the best one yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Um, let's, let's bring on Francis, shall we? We're going to talk about vegetables now after talking yes. about... <laughs> yeah, because, um, because... So much meat and dairy. Because... Um, we're gonna have this is this has been carefully orchestrated um, to get the the burger joint guy on um, with the cookbook guy. Where where is the, Francis? Come on stage. We have our, spe- as our second special guest here, Mister Francis Lamb. Come come have a seat on the on 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 the cozy sofa here. Francis um, has a awesome podcast it is called the splendid table it is a splendid podcast and everyone should use the word splendid as often as possible because it's a splendid word thank you for renaming your show after us today that's really (laughs) and um touched me and uh you also make cookbooks for a living that is actually your job i'd like to think both those things are my job i mean i I do things (laughs) for love and passion but you know also like feed my um he (laughs) So, so yeah, Francis, you've done like, well, I don't know, like a dozen cookbooks. And so we are going to um, talk to you about cookbooks later. But first, we want to ask you, or rather Anna wants to ask you about <laughs> um, vegetarianism. Because we have the burger guy here, and we have the vegetarian here. And so Anna's going to take the lead on this one. But you're going to start off by explaining to us, because I've asked you this question like five times and you've never answered it. And now I'm going to ask you on stage and you're going to have to answer it, which is why? (laughs) (laughs) I actually have like the world's weirdest explanation for why I am a vegetarian. I've been on and off vegetarian for like 20 years. I've been, I'm on now for a while, but it's mainly just because I really like placing restrictions on myself. Really, honestly, <laughs> like, I mean, it, you're it's like also, Mark Zuckerberg. It's just like random this it's, year. It's kind I'm going of to true. I mean, only things I kill. Yeah, I mean, like I do care about animals and animal welfare, but I'm not going to lie. It's also just because, like, I like to have limits. I'm a very structured individual. Discipline. <laughs> yes, like exactly, discipline. exactly. I buy that. Yeah. So, but speaking of burgers and vegetarianism, one of the things I kind of have been interested in is that so much of the discussion around vegetarian food over the past, you know, I don't know, five years or so has really shifted to this kind of uh, Silicon Valley VC driven quest for the non meat meat alternative. And I find that to be a really weird movement in vegetarian food, because it doesn't really seem to be aimed at vegetarians. It seems to be much more aimed at meat eaters. Yeah, people yeah. who are eating his burgers like that's yes. Right. <laughs> So they won't eat his burger. Teddy, would you, <laughs> yeah. would, would you ever serve a, a vegetarian burger at Black Tap? Uh, we do, actually. We have two. Um, we have a falafel burger and then a, a more traditional veggie burger. Well, uh, would you, what, would you, well, I don't know whether we do like an impossible see, burger. I would have to. falafel yeah. burger I can get behind. Really? Right. Okay. Yeah, because that's not trying to be meat. You know, it's just trying to be a really interesting vegetable burger. But this idea of trying to create like... I'm going to create a veggie burger that bleeds because it's like vegetarians were like, you know what I was missing? The blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God, if only I could get more blood yeah, in my life. Exactly. 
But I mean, so that, but that's the thing, right? Like, so you know, everyone the re- the reason people are now aiming to create veggie burgers that bleed, and that's like the Impossible Foods burger. I feel like that that talking about a buzz food, right? People started serving that. How many people have heard about this? The burger that bleeds. Show of hands. So yeah. yeah so I, this, and I, we were just on the email today. I had one in Houston, Texas. This has really made it. You know, how how the was it? How, it was great. Yeah, I, I like them. And and Ryan Sutton was just on Eater today, raving about the vegetarian chicken sandwich at superiority burger like this is a i mean this is now a a thing it is tofu yeah it's not actually yeah wait actually i'm sorry i don't mean to hijack this but can we talk about how weird it is that this impossible burger is talked about as uh, inevitably people say it's the veggie burger that bleeds yes because a burger doesn't fucking bleed. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like, I don't care if you have like you raw meat, you kind of like blood. <laughs> what blood birds, birds are eating? Like, for exactly. some reason, like, we've like really caught in the yeah. idea. But yeah, yeah, but for, for the record, when you see the red juice coming out of a burger or a piece of meat, that's not blood. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, well, right, but I think the thing that's interesting about that is it's sort of doing what you're talking about, which is keying into, this maybe is redundant, but... I think you all get it, like the carnality of me mm-hmm. and keying into the sort of, um, you know, that, that, that what we think stereotypically of the meat eaters urge of like this, like, you know, cave person who wants to go and like destroy another animal for sustenance right, right. and like, you know, like keying into that thing. Um, and maybe we're overthinking it. Maybe it's just the idea that, hey, people really like how burgers taste because they've grown up eating burgers. And if we can get people to eat a burger that's not actually made of cow and animal, then we're doing the earth the better service. I remember reading years ago this uh, this stat, which is that if everyone in America ate one, like changed their diet to eat one vegetarian day a week, it would do as much for carbon emissions as taking every single car off the road. No, I, I completely agree with you. And I think this is actually something that Felix and I, one of the few things we'll agree on, um, is that it seems like, yes, obviously people should be eating less meat, but you could just eat less meat. It, it seems like odd that the way to get people to eat less meat is to spend all this time and energy creating a meat-like facsimile when there's so much other food that's not meat. That and you and could more just generally, eat. It's, it's odd to try and persuade people to eat less meat by extolling whatever suspicion suspect virtues there might be to vegetarianism like you don't need to go to zero if you cut your meat consumption by 90 percent, you're 90 percent of the way there and you can still have meat on special occasions well i or you know i i guess i'm a little confused by the confusion right like one of like if you I mean, what? I think three percent of Americans are vegetarian, right? Like that's all—it's like three percent. Yeah, you're, <laughs> you're the elite, um, and so like there, are, you know, and so obviously it's hard to get people to convert all the way, and getting people, even when you're telling them to eat less meat, still they like to have something they can think of as a burger or something like it, and so if a few people in Silicon Valley want to throw money at trying to create a product that will lure people into eating less meat. I'm not quite sure I see the harm or, you know, it's not as if there's an, there's a, it doesn't see, I mean, Francis, maybe you can talk to talk about how the food media um, focuses its attention, but it doesn't seem like there's a, a finite amount of oxygen with which to, to talk about these issues. Like you can talk about the the substitutes and also just reducing the amount of food uh, meat that Americans eat. I mean, I don't entirely disagree. I just think that it's a, I think that the idea that we're actually going to get to a 
a burger or other, again, meat, ersatz meats products that actually taste like meat is probably never going to happen. Or I think is we're there already. We're all yeah, ish, there. ish. I mean, like, yes, but is that ever going to taste as good as like an actual like the best burger? Probably no, not. But and it'll, I just, be, it'll taste better than eighty five percent of burgers. Sure, and okay, but again, I just don't see why because I just. I don't really see the market for this product long term. But don't, Can don't I give you? I'm going to give you one one market for this question for for, for this burger rather, rather, which is I love eating vegetarian food and I love eating vegetarian meals, and I'm always very happy that someone else is making them because they're incredibly hard work to make. And if you give me a pre-made burger which tastes like a delicious burger and all i need to do to cook it is throw it in a pan with like four minutes on either side that's a sort of that's making my vegetarian meal so much easier than virtually any vegetarian meal i could otherwise cook i don't know grilled cheese is pretty easy <laughs> Teddy. well i was gonna say don't you i mean I, to, for, don't you think there are people a lot of people who sort of buy the moral argument for vegetarianism but just sort of don't want to do it Right. I mean, so who buy either, you know, uh, animal cruelty or climate or whatever the reasons are, but just crave a burger. So to me, that's a, that's a market. It's a very, cause again, you're talking about a market of people who care enough about these issues to want to spend a lot of money on this product, but don't care enough that they want to just become vegetarian. And how often are they going to eat this product? Again, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, obviously. I just think that the idea, because when you, t- you, when you hear people in Silicon Valley talk about this, it's the like, this is the, you know, the disruptive product that's going to change everything. And I'm like, is that it? That is the I, way they talk about everything. Yeah, I was yeah. going to give them that. I, you know, yeah. Yeah. We're going to disrupt yeah. toilet paper. Yeah, We're going to blow the toilet paper world up. I don't know. This is like one of the few times I kind of. I, I kind of uh, admire that that attitude. Like, very, I don't really care what they're doing with toilet paper, but like, the, Please, you know, it's a toilet yeah, paper. Yeah, <laughs> like, or like selling diapers or whatever. But like the, you know, there are a few companies right now that are, for instance, trying to do lab-grown meat. This is like a really big thing, and, and who knows if it's ever going to pan out. There, there's some serious scientific challenges. Uh, they, they still have to resolve to ever make it. Uh, bovine. Yeah, zero. right. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, like right now, the way you produce lab-grown meat, like people have known how to culture cells forever, but you have to literally use a serum that is extracted from cow fetuses and then bathe the cells in that to grow them. I mean, it's Which super, super vegetarian. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we prefer the term marinate. Yeah, marinate exactly. <laughs> um, it's, mm, delicious. But so anyway, like, but one day, let's say they were able to bring down, like, find a substitute for said serum and bring down the cost. You know. Would anyone really care if their chicken nugget was grown in a lab? At this point, it might oh, as well yes. be. So, oh yes, and I can tell you. I mean, again, talking about three percent. Um, if, if there are three percent of people who are vegetarian, there are also this very aggressively evangelical and fast-growing movement of what's known as effective altruists. And um, once you start going into the effective altruism movement, you discover that the thing they really care most about in the world is chickens. Okay. That's true. Yeah. So wouldn't they want the chicken meat grown in a lab without yes, any actual chickens? Absolutely. Okay. Because because it's like the the thing you can do to with with the least um, cost to yourself to alleviate the most suffering on planet Earth is to stop eating chicken. Okay. Okay. Well, here's a, this is an interesting question. How are you defining 
how are you defining, you know, how you, how you, what am I saying here? How are you defining pain? So, suffering? so you can, you can because define is, it. Is it the individual being that matters? Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, you to can. Make, you can dis- to make three hundred pounds of chicken meat. Right. You need six hundred chickens. Right. To make three hundred pounds of cow meat, you need half a cow. Exactly. So, do you? Are you? You're. You're costing three hundred chickens worth of pain versus one cow's worth of exactly. pain. Exactly. Meanwhile, from an environmental perspective, the absolute. If you're like, if you're like vegetarian curious, or not even if you're just like you, know, you just want to be like more environmentally. Um, conscious uh, in, in terms of your meat eating choices, the single best thing you can do is eat less beef and eat more chicken. Actually, is well, eat, more uh, eat more wild caught fish, and, but that's another you know, well, vegetarian for that matter. But right, right. But if you're going to be a carnivore, yeah, from from an um, like basically, even if you assume that chickens suffer, you know, five percent of the amount that like humans do or cows do or anything else, you're still better off stopping eating chickens just because you have to kill so many chickens to eat your annual chicken okay, I'm just going to say this, though, as the vegetarian, though. It's like, where do you draw that line, though? Like, because an insect is also a being that you're killing. I mean, like, we... I, I'm, how many- I'm, I'm a strong believer that oysters are vegetarian. <laughs> yeah. Because they don't have a nervous system, so they <laughs> right. don't nope. suffer. Yeah, Peter, it was a Peter, Peter Singer was actually said that you could eat, like he said, vegans could ethically eat oysters, famously. Like, it's the one living organism that a vegan is... It sounds co- like an oyster lover. Yeah. Uh, interpret- <laughs> Ironically, the, the, the oyster is kosher for vegans. That's... Yeah. <laughs> um, I, that, just, like, side note here, this is a really good year for oysters right now. I don't know if you've noticed <laughs> that, like, oysters, that there are good years and bad years, but this winter is, like, Go out, eat lots of oysters. They're, they're really good this year. Even if you're vegetarian. <laughs> Especially yeah. if you're vegetarian. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, no, there's a legit argument for it. I mean, Peter Singer, like, you know, I would defer to his, uh, yeah. you know, his, him. But there's actually a really good environmental case for eating oysters because oysters filter the water, right? They literally clean the water they live in. So the more oysters you eat, the more people will want to grow them, the cleaner water you have. It's actually like you're doing good for the world if you eat oysters. So, Anna, why don't you eat oysters? I actually just don't like oysters. <laughs> as good as F. <laughs> Wait, so I, I want to go back to the moonshot though, like the, the Silicon Valley. But like, so Teddy, like, could you sell lab-grown meat? Do you think, like, if it came out, like, or how would you sell lab-grown meat at this moment at a burger place? You'd Assume- make it look really good on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, I mean that. I don't know. I, you know, unicorn. I, I would. Colors. I would. Uh, I I hesitate to say anything that our chef would would disagree with, but I think that that for I think for us that is you know sort of contrary to the brand. The whole idea of sort of old-fashioned, old-school. You know, again, Zeppelin on the radio, um, and you know, a good old-fashioned burger and fries, and um, and, and rainbow unicorn milkshakes. Which it's totally old-fashioned. It's a complex brand. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brand that we've kind of in bent Dubai. in a couple different, sha- yeah. a couple different shapes. Um, so I don't know. That, that to me doesn't um, feel like us. I, I would personally eat one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would love to. I, I, I would be, I'd be intrigued by it. But so would you, it's like, do you want people just to talk more about, like, what would you prefer the vegetarian movement of the moment to be? What would your... Again, I think that if people want to be vegetarian. There is so much fantastic vegetarian food from so many different cultures that you can eat. And again, I'm not saying you can't 
eat these other products. I just think I'm just not entirely sure what the point of them is. And I think overall, if we really want to, again, focus on the environmental issues or the animal suffering issues, I actually think there are far better ways to do that. And I think this is more about this kind of like Silicon Valley God complex than it is about actually trying to fix any of these okay, problems. Okay, so let's, let's, let's be servicey here. And, um, <laughs> you know, if I care about animal welfare and animal suffering, what is the far better way that I, what should I be doing? I mean, I think if you look at even like lobbying when they lobby to get like fast food restaurants to use cage-free eggs or to try to get like in, I think, New Jersey to try to stop getting, New Jersey, maybe Iowa to stop having pigs in crates, like some of those like actual policy changes. To me, again, that is going to do a lot more than like one person once every six months eating an extremely expensive fake burger. I I just, it's going to make you feel good. Is it actually going to do anything? No. Okay, I think that's that's our vegetarian segment. Um, on and on which note, we're gonna we're gonna defenestrate Teddy Goff. <laughs> I, can, um, I can just leave. You don't need he, to do that. Yeah. You don't actually have to go. But he will be back for the um, for the Q and A. So any questions you have about um, unicorn milkshakes, tweet them at um, hashtag Slate Live, and we will drag him back and force you force him to answer your questions. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um, Can I? Um, do you want to come sit? Like, yeah. do, you, you feel, are you feeling cozy over there? Do you want to come do sit? We, not if you throw people out the window. And sit <laughs> <laughs> sit um, right here, dog. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, the, the, the official defenestration of Teddy Goff is well, I can't say because his mum's in the audience, and so we mustn't. Um, <laughs> They're doing terrible things to him back there. <laughs> <laughs> if you listen closely, you can hear the scream. <laughs> um, actually, I, am I going to really? Uh, I don't want this is your show, so I don't definitely don't want to derail your show. But can I talk a little bit more about the Silicon Valley burger? Yeah, yeah sure. sure. If you want, because it's actually a really fascinating conversation to be had here that actually has probably nothing to do with money. So I apologize, but no, I'll just put it out here. And then if we don't like it, uh, you know, this is not going live to tape. So you can cut it. Yeah, we can just cut we, it. We, this <laughs> is, you know what? This is going to be our sleep plus segment. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. It's so good. It's plus, which really means it was minus in real life. Um, uh, okay, that, but that here's cut the question. close to home, yeah, man. Right. Okay. So, so I think I feel, I feel a little bit badly because for the, those who didn't raise their hands when we talk about impossible burger. So, Probably a little bit of explanation to get to my question I want to ask all of you. Yeah. Is, so the Impossible Burger is this burger that is not lab-grown meat in that it's not like taking cow cells and then trying to like replicate cow cells by making them grow themselves or whatever lab-grown meat is. But it is a burger made of plants, plant materials, but has actually taken like – found a way to find like, oh, the thing in like – soybean roots or something like that that is closest to like animal blood that gives it that red color but also gives it that sort of tinny metallic blood meat flavor and is like creating this thing that looks like ground beef 
and cooks like ground beef and tastes almost like 98% of the way there to like what you would close your eyes and just be, oh, that's ground beef. Um, so it's kind of an amazing feat of science, right? Yeah. And they're continually refining the recipe to get closer and closer to 100% where you really can't tell the difference between ground beef and this The burger product. equivalent of the Turing test. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but once they get there, maybe even now, because I think most people like, wouldn't tell that, you know, that 2% difference is probably not meaningful to them. Then you have to ask yourself, what is meat? Is meat a basically a chemical formula, a structure that creates a an object in the world that smells a certain way and cooks a certain way and tastes a certain way? Or is meat, does meat have to be the product of killing an animal for your I love food? this question. I love this because, because it's the difference between the Anglo-Saxon names and the French names, right? It's the difference between the cow and the beef, between mm. the pork and the pig. It's the difference, like, there's an animal, and then there's the food. And if you're talking about the food, you're really talking about the experiential um, object rather than the, you know, species. Right. So, and yeah, I can yourself. totally see that you that in, in some weird kind of experiential way, it is me. Whoa. But here's the question, and, and this is actually the question of market, right? Once. As a, so as a consumer, a literal consumer, do you feel like you're actually getting meat if you know it wasn't killed right. from an animal? Like it wasn't taken from a live creature? And does that matter to you? I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the literal billion-dollar question and, and these, I also these think, companies are asking themselves, right? Yeah, and I also think this is interesting when you, I mean, this is like maybe off-topic, but like why people become vegetarians and like in so many food restrictions in general that I often think are far less about the food itself than it is about defining your identity around what you do and do not consume. Right. You know, like, I mean, I think I was actually listening to um, people connected to kind of the... Um, the lab-grown beef movement talking about like, oh, well, you know, we could create this, you know, pork alternative, so then Muslims would be able to eat pork, and we could create, you know, this other alternative, and kosher Jews would be able to eat this. And I'm like, right, but that's not the point. Right. <laughs> the point isn't the food itself. It's that you define yourself by what you do and do not do. Mm. So, yeah. I, I, it's actually, I, I feel like a lot of Orthodox Jews would be very happy to get pork they were suddenly allowed to eat. <laughs> like, our religion, uh, Ju I, Judaism I, I is will, good at finding workarounds. Like, it's a lot of our religion. If, if anybody ever manages to create a vegetarian hamon, then, like, that's, <laughs> that, that's, gonna, that's like 24th century crazy shit right there. Um, but no, you're absolutely right. And it's, it does open up new vistas while at the same time kind of opening up interesting questions like are you are, is this like a loophole i mean jews love loopholes but like yeah. for, for people <laughs> who aren't you know for pe people who are more like principled vegetarian you know, i don't eat meat if on if it looks like a duck and quacks like a, if it basically feels like meat and tastes like meat are you kind of cheating yourself by eating it mm -hmm. right. no i mean i think there's something interesting to be said for that because i mean I'm not saying this is why people should be vegetarian, but the history of vegetarianism is often about like, you know, aestheticism and this idea of suffering and this idea of, you know, not having something. And it's, it's, it's almost as much as the lack of suffering is the fact that you're not consuming something. So if then you are consuming the simulacrum of that, 
What's the point? Which this may is also the perf- explain why there are only 3% of Americans right now who are vegetarians. <laughs> this is true. But, but this is also the perfect segue to cookbooks. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. You know, I spend a small amount of time in bookstores looking at cookbook sections. And for something which is ostensibly only 3% of of Americans, by God, there are a lot of vegetarian cookbooks out there. And, I mean, obviously everyone likes to be able to cook vegetarian food, even if they're not vegetarian, but it is hard, and every vegetarian cookbook will have this long introduction saying, it's not hard, it's easy, (laughs) and then you're like, you're lying to me, and then... And, and yeah, there's like, have you ever come across, would you ever publish like an honest vegetarian cookbook saying like, this is, you're just going to have to have a gazillion different herbs and spices, most of which you've never heard of and the 12 different vegetables and it's really hard and you're chopping for hours and then at the end of it, you don't feel full. (laughs) (laughs) That's a bestseller. (laughs) I mean, probably you, if you wanted to go there, you'd probably, yeah, I would publish that book because that'd be hilarious. (laughs) Um... But the reality is, uh, you know, I, I disagree with the idea that vegetarian food is hard, uh, you know, on its face. Some of it is more complex and, and you know, it's, a, but, you know, a lot of it is like, so much of cooking is just muscle memory and practice, right? And so much of cooking is about... Even vegetarian how, cooking? Even vegetarian cooking. I feel like all my favorite vegetarian cuisines, like whether they're Indian or Mexican, you just know that, like, there's been days of work going into these things. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, but like you know, but at the same time, like you'll go to like a, a, a like you'll go to a restaurant, open up, and you're like, here's the 72 hour short rib, and you're like, oh sweet, hook me up with the 72 hour short rib. You know, like I think you know, they're like like anything, it's about um, okay. If we want to get into like just cooking, you know, yes, you can get a lot of flavor pretty easily out of a piece of meat. Uh, but I think in large part because you're just accustomed to that, that being the central focal point of the meal, right? And so like, oh, if I know, you know, what kind of steak or chop I'm going to sear on the stove and finish in the oven tonight, I'm 85% of the way there to dinner. And then I'm just going to make a salad on the side and, you know, whatever. I'm going to like, you know, throw some broccoli in the oven with the pork and I'm done. But if you change your way of thinking to cooking. So for instance, uh, I eat meat and I love meat, but I cook almost entirely vegetarian at home just because it's easier for me and the way I live and the way like my family lives. Um, so like on Sunday, I'll boil, oh my God, I'm going to sound like such a freaking Brooklyn cliche right now. I'm so <laughs> sorry. But I'll boil up some like, you know, some farro or some, oh God, I was going to say quinoa. <laughs> He's boiling quinoa. quinoa. <laughs> All right, people. But I'll boil up something. It's safe. We're in Brooklyn. Some kind of grain (laughs) or some... I just like cook a big pot of rice in my rice cooker, which is, you know... You you can put quinoa in the rice cooker. For those of you at home, you can't see me. I'm Chinese, and Chinese people cook their rice in a goddamn rice cooker. (laughs) (laughs) They'll come and be like, oh, what's your method for the the pot and the fryer? No, we turn on a rice cooker. It's how we've always done it. Uh, Anyway. We didn't eat rice before rice cookers. (laughs) We ate like weird wheat shit. 
Um, no, but seriously, I'll like, so I'll have a big pot of like, you know, something that will be my base and probably I'll roast, you know, two or three vegetables in the oven simply so I can like, you know, mess with them later in the week. And then, you know, that'll end up being three of my meals for the week will be, okay, I'm going to take that thing I boiled. I'm going to, today I'm going to dress it with some buttermilk and some herbs and maybe hit it with a little bit of like a grate, a little garlic into it. And I'm going to put some of the nice roasted broccoli on top and scramble an egg on top and like, boom, that's dinner. Maybe shave some cheese and like dinner's on the table. And this, this by the way, is, is the way that all food people talk. Yeah. They, they, they'll be like, you'll be like, this is delicious. They'll be like, oh my God, it's so easy. I just grated some garlic, scrambled some eggs, roasted some vegetables three days Which ago. Which of the things <laughs> I just mentioned is going to take you more than three and a half minutes? When you add them all together. But again, whenever you hear the word just, whenever the word just comes out of a food person's <laughs> mouth, you know that they're trying to pull one over on you. <laughs> okay, that's legit, and I totally will take that hit. Because I am the business of making cookbooks. And yeah, we do want to make it. I mean, there are times where I'll say to the author, like, can we take, I mean, I know this is your vision, <laughs> but can we take four ingredients out of this recipe? Just pick four. I don't care which four. Just pick four. Because it's going to look so insane when you open the page and it's three rows of ingredients. Like, I get it. I totally get that idea of being wanting to be user-friendly and wanting people to feel like there's this weird balance you have to strike, right? In as a food media person, as a person who just likes to talk about food, and certainly as, a, as an editor, a cookbook editor, and an re- editor of recipes, there's a weird balance you have to strike between the fact that you know that most people buy cookbooks, because let's face it, if you just want a recipe for something to make for dinner tonight, you have Google. Like, you don't need to buy a cookbook. Like, I know that, right? So most people buy cookbooks as a part of a as a different practice in their life outside of just cooking. A lot of people don't cook out of their cookbooks, and that's fine too. A lot of them, a lot of people buy them because of beautiful pictures, because of the stories. I really focus on the stories in my cookbooks, so that's another issue. But really, when it comes down to it, a lot of people buy cookbooks because it is like so many other things you buy, an expression of like the lifestyle you aspire to, mm-hmm. right? It's an aspirational product. Right, exactly. I have, I have a million cookbooks thing, and I'll cook out of two, yeah. but the other ones are the ones I want to cook out of. Yeah, but like, and that's meaningful because that actually says, you're saying to yourself, oh, this is not just like in a cheap, flimsy way, this is the kind of person I want to be, but you might say, oh, I like that idea and maybe I won't make that recipe with the full, you know, three columns of ingredients, but maybe I'll take the three things out of it that sounded cool to me that I hadn't heard of before and I'll, I'll play with that on Saturday. You know, so, I, yeah, are there cookbooks which make it clear that, like, half of these ingredients are just because this is the, you know, deepest expression of the artistry of the author, and you don't really need that? <laughs> I mean, oh, can, can, can I have, like, the abridged version of Otto <laughs> saying, like, you can actually just cut out half of these, rest, these ingredients and it'll be fine? I mean, as a general rule, yeah, you could probably cut out I mean, whatever. Cook, there are a lot of cookbooks, so I can't speak to everything. You know, there are plenty of cookbooks that are like literally five ingredients, five minutes. Here's your dinner, right? Like that's the idea. But um, as a as a person who cooks, yeah. I mean, if you know how to cook, and you know that, like, if you know how to cook to some degree, and you know that, oh, getting really nice dark color on something creates this kind of flavor versus, you know, putting it in a cool pan for three minutes where it's like cooked through and it won't like, you know, give you a tummy ache eating it. 
but you know you don't get a nice sear, it gives you a different kind of flavor, then yeah, you can absolutely play around with everything in between. And you can play around with, like, if you know what the spices taste like in this recipe, and you're like, you know, I love coriander, I don't have any coriander on me, I'm probably not going to be sad that it doesn't have coriander in it, that's fine. But a lot of it is going to be, the more you cook, the easier it gets. And I'm sorry to say that, because it's a crappy thing to say. But so, okay, let me ask you about the cookbooks, though. Is it, like, how, is there a correlation between the amount that people actually cook out of a cookbook and the amount that it sells? Are the ones which people use the, the ones which sell the most? I'm sh Is there a correlation? I haven't Is seen it? a study. So I, I, can't speak to, I can't speak to that. Run a regression. <laughs> yeah, let's run a regression. Yeah, what's the R squared uh, on that? I mean, I think the... Probably yes to a large degree, but absolutely not to like an absolute degree, if that makes any sense. So there are lots of cookbooks which, you know, are mostly decorative and that's fine. Well, I, I reject the idea that they're decorative, right? Because I don't think it's about that. I don't think it's about like, oh, I put it there because it looks nice next to like my trinkets. But I think it's, you know, if, you're, if your idea is decorative is like, oh, you're just reading out of it versus cooking out of it or you're enjoying sitting down with it on an evening and flipping through the pictures and just imagining that food and what it would taste like. I think those are totally valid uses of a cookbook. And again, like I said, I, I, I in particular, love working on cookbooks that really tell a story. That really, and in some ways, I mean that literally. I mean that in terms of like, oh, the narrative and telling a story behind, you know, a cuisine or maybe a journey through a place and, and walking you through a region. I, 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 I worked on a cookbook um, a couple years ago that came out uh, by the author Ronnie Lundy, and the book is called Vittles, and it's a book about Appalachia, which is the region that she's from. And it is one of the most beautiful documents of place and culture and one of the most beautiful statements of a person standing up in the world and saying this is my place and these are my people and you cannot look down on us and it's told through recipes it's a tremendously affecting work and i She's a lovely person. I grew like in, I'm also incredibly fond of the author, having worked with her, and now I like want to tear up every time I think about this damn book. Um, but you know, maybe you're not going to make the food in that book. Maybe you're not going to make the peas, taters, and cream. I've never cooked out of that book. I'll be honest with you, and I edited it. But I've read it cover to cover five so wait, times. So tell me, answer me that one because that's. It, I always thought that was like the number one most important thing that cookbook editors did was they cooked every recipe five times to make sure that like. No, that's what they a recipe worked. tester does. Oh, that, oh, the yeah. recipe tester. Does? Yeah, I don't, I don't mean to be snide, but I mean like no. If I had to cook every recipe out of a cookbook five times. <laughs> so like, not, well, I actually yeah, and I think we are, I, like have a, a much more like crass question, which is kind of, does anyone really make money off of cookbooks? <laughs> Um, a lot of people make a little bit of money, right? Well, so who makes money? Like in the is it Chris just Ina, is it just Ina Garten? <laughs> um, Ina Garten does really well. Ina Garten is Ina Garten's success as a cookbook author is at a utterly different scale than literally anyone else. T tell me, Kenji books. is making money. 
I'm sorry? Tell me Kenji is making money because like I I worship that book. Uh I'm sure he's done well. I don't I haven't asked him. I've been looking at his accounts <laughs> lately, but uh uh but I'm sure I heard that was that like the big blockbuster Norton book of like last yeah. Christmas. So this is Kenji, the author of the Food Lab. Kenji Yeah. J Lopez Alt. J Kenji Lopez Alt J. and Kenji. he yeah, which I love because I'm a nerd and he actually explains why you're doing everything. Yeah. And that is missing from most cookbooks. But sure, ca- I mean, that's not the point kind of, of like the, the chemistry of it, but like, you know, there's me and my nerdy friends who like that, but it's, it's great if you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, so what is a successful cookbook typically? Like, and how does that compare, like a sale, sales wise? Like, and how does that compare to like other parts of publishing or do you, you know? Um, well, if you want numbers, I know there's a show about money. Um, it all depends. It depends on a million factors, uh, not least of which is how m- the single most important one is actually, from the publisher's point of view anyway, is how much you're actually paying the author to create the book. Yeah. Um, but at like a, if you've done the math right, or if you've done the math in a, a sort of, I don't know, it's hard to say actually because... It, it 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 differs so much from book to book. I'll put it this way: um, unless you're really, really like doing something weird with like paying a ton, a ton of money in the advance and so on and so forth, or like you're just making tricking the book out like crazy, where it like you know you press a button, and it opens itself up, and it like crawls across <laughs> the counter to you, <laughs> starts cooking itself. Um, typically, a book that sells thirty to forty thousand copies is a solid success. Um, and what pro- what proportion of cookbooks would you sell? Would you say sell thirty to forty thousand copies? Well, again, I hesitate to give that number because it's all relative, right? It's it's relative to all these other factors I just talked about. Like it's a P and L, right? So like you add here, this has got to go up. Sure, but like be. but like you know, but, on roughly, but, but, would mean, you say uh, like more than a third? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you know about the 80-20 rule and, like, all forms of media? Yeah. Right. Book publishing right. So, is, is, a, is a hits publishing business, and the small number of hits sort of cross-subsidize. Yeah, the, so basically 20% of your products will basically make 80% of your revenue if, if you're doing it right. That's kind of what you expect. So that means 80% of your products are losing money. And, and I think that's a good thing. It means there are more cookbooks out there. There's a whole bunch of like amazing uneconomic cookbooks out there, which you can find in a cookbook. Store. No, yeah, that's exactly what it means yeah. because I think it's important to be in an industry that doesn't only look at your bottom line. It's important to be in an industry that recognizes that, okay, we make products and products go into the market for consumers to buy and hopefully make money on, but you're also the industry that creates a tangible part of our culture that documents our culture and tells the story that Ronnie Lundy wants to tell or ask the questions. I have another book that I worked on um, by Alex Tupac and Jordana Rothman called Tacos, Recipes, and Provocations. Now, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to be self-promotional right now, but I think it's relevant. Um, and it's a cookbook of tacos. Uh, and But the whole story of the book can be told in one of the recipes. And, and it is a, a taco of seared scallops, with caper raisin emulsion and caramelized cauliflower. And it's a, the one, the primary author, Alex Stupak, is a chef and he has restaurants in, in the city called Empeon. He put it on his menu and people gave him shit. 
because they're like, you cannot charge me $24 for two tacos, you goddamn crook. And they just went at him for how much money he was charging for this until he finally said, okay, that dish, the scallops, that sauce, that cauliflower, is literally a dish they have been serving at four-star French restaurant Jean-Georges since 1997. It's one of his signature dishes. I called him up, asked him if I could use his recipe. He sent it to me. I buy the scallops from his same supplier. You would never bat an eyelash going to his restaurant and paying $40 for it. You come to mine, I put it on a tortilla. I literally add to the dish, right? I'm actually adding now to the dish. <laughs> you got a free tortilla. <laughs> but now it's a taco, and so therefore, in your mind, it has to be cheap. So what does that say about how we think of Mexican cuisine and, by extension, Mexican culture and Mexican people? You're literally buying the same thing, and you refuse to pay even a tenth of what you pay for this in a French restaurant. So what does that say? about our relationship to Mexican cuisine. And the whole book is basically that recipe expanded into 50 different tacos because he's constantly asking the question of because how do we Because it is a well-known fact that any piece, any great meal can be improved by putting it in a tortilla <laughs> and calling it a taco. <laughs> but, so. but you know what I'm saying? So like we're in, a, in an industry that's not only making products for profit, but we want to be asking these questions that need to be asked. Let me, let me ask you one question which, which isn't being asked, which um, I found an old foreign, po- I think it was in Foreign Policy um, essay by Tyler Cowen about like cookbooks. And he was saying there are 8 million Chinese cookbooks. There are 8 million Mexican cookbooks. There's probably 25 million Indian cookbooks of various des- descriptions. But for most regional cuisines in the world for most countries in the world you're basically going to find zero or one or two and they're mostly out of print that there's this herding mechanism um in cuisines and obviously that's every kind of regional cuisine in america including appalachia that we can find but like if what we want to do is discover new combinations and flavors and tastes that's still surprisingly hard in the cookbook world is there a question? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, like, if, like, how does that square with what you're saying about, hey, we publish like 80% of our books are uneconomical and we have this wonderful range of... But like, I think you also have stuff. to have um, countries and cultures where you have enough development and uh, restaurant culture or just eating out culture so that you have recipes. Because I think it'll, you know, if, you, if you don't have that and you don't have scale and you don't have standardization... You're, I mean, you're going to have most people eating at home, most people teaching other relatives how to cook. So you're not going to have recipes. You don't have recipes if you tell your, you know, your, if your grandmother's teaching her how to do something, she's probably not giving you a recipe. Not, not unless you're Diana Kennedy, anyway. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I think it's, it's interesting. I mean, that article was interesting because it was kind of like this idea that there's a little bit of like an economic indicator of when a, a cookbook comes out that means like that country has reached a certain level of development. Hmm. And that's why you only see often from a certain range of countries, which yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious also if in like the cookbook market, is that starting to expand or is it still focusing and on I those think kind it's of happened certainly with regional cu- Chinese cuisine. Yeah, I mean, well, I think a couple of things are at play here, right? Because there's both the, well, what will the publishers publish? And it's also like, oh, what are people trying, what stories are people trying to tell, right? And if you grew up in a world where you'd never heard of Uzbeki food and 
you know, what is going to be the thing that makes you think, oh my God, my life's work is to tell the world about Uzbek food, right? Or, or like, you know, you grew up Uzbek and you, you know, you, you were never told your food is worth something to us. Your food is worth your talking about. So what's the thing that makes you say, I need to tell the story of my food, right? So there, there is a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a chicken or egg here. Well, the more that cuisine exists in the media, the more that story is told, the more people feel drawn to it. That means more people want to buy it and more people want to tell it, right? So um, that's a, you know, uh, it's, it's funny because on some level, the framework of this conversation can be the exact same framework as what do we do about diversity in different industries, right? And well, we just don't get the, we don't just don't get the resumes. Is that really enough of a reason? We don't get the resumes of people who are like this and people who are like that. Not enough people are applying. I'm like, you know, we look through them I and like, if they were good ones, we would hire them. Like, is that enough? Or is the real question, it's the responsibility of those in power to go and seek those voices and develop them, right? And it's the responsibility of those in power who make these choices to make sure that we create a world in which the things that we have power over not only are accessible and open people but actually attract all different kinds of people and in the publishing world i would say yes i mean i would say it's you know we are a reactive industry like every other but on some level, if we do feel like we're an industry that's about creating culture and documenting culture and adding to our cultural conversations, yeah, it's on us to find the author that wants to tell the story of Uzbek food. And it's on us to make the case, um, make to some degree the economic case, but also make the case to say, like, this is a story that we need to put out in the world. Um, Peace, my Uzbek people. <laughs> I don't know why that. Was, yeah. I don't know why we're was, gonna all get Uzbek. I don't, I don't, after why, yeah, I don't know why I was like so down. Yeah, with so any any, Uz, any Uzbeks <laughs> in the house who want to write a cookbook, like yeah. fr- come find Francis after the um, yeah. show. So I guess I have uh, back to a slightly more less high-minded issue, but I'm curious how many cookbooks actually have cookbooks actually have their recipes tested. Like I mean, this is right. I mean, like to what this seems like. There are a lot of controversies about, you know, ghostwriting, for instance, and, and just like the process by which a cookbook is made. Like, uh, you know, celebrity chef, if a celebrity chef is on the cover of a cookbook, that chances are they did not actually write all the recipes and cook all the food. So, I mean, like, what is there? Is, I mean, like, what is the quality control process in the industry like right now, especially given what you're saying about how a lot of people don't buy these books to cook from necessarily, but as a sort of aspirational gesture? Mm-hmm. I mean, what you know, is there a standardized process or does it just vary from place to place? And how do you even guess which cookbook is going to be good <laughs> that you would want to cook from? Oh, uh, well, let, me, let me carve up that last question. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big one. And that's a, truly a matter of taste and, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, I have bad news yeah. for a lot of people, um, not just about cookbooks, but about the world in general. Um, it's 2017. That sucks. Uh, that wasn't the bad news I was here to deliver. Um, celebrity chefs. If you eat a celebrity chef's restaurant tonight, yeah, 
they they're not cooking. They there. didn't cook your food. <laughs> yeah, it's true. What? But you want it blows people's minds when, like, you know, Mario Batali famously lives in Greenwich Village, lives in New York City. You know, he tapes his shows here. It blows people's mind when they go to Mario Batali's restaurant in Vegas that, like, he didn't personally stand there and sear their steak for them, and then like get on a plane and fly somewhere else. <laughs> He's at every restaurant at once. It, like, yeah, it's like a quantum like, particle. If you cannot actually clone yourself, not just the number of times you have restaurants. But literally, the number of employees you have in that restaurant, then you are not like you know, then that you haven't fulfilled the reality of most what like a lot of people think is true. Um, so yeah, a lot of chefs do not write their own cookbooks. Yeah, um, I don't think that should be controversial in the way that it's you know their cooks cook their food in their restaurant. Well, but so what, what I'm curious but, about though is it, from what I understand, there's sort of a big range in how much role they play at all. Sure, like you know how often are they doing even any. Are they tasting the food? Are they are they really editing it, or are they leaving that to someone? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, there's nothing I can say in a blanket way that could address that. There's no trend. I mean, I, I know some chefs who are, you know, running extremely complicated business ventures, and you know, I bet when their editor texts them about something in their book, they are like, "Okay, what do we need to do right now? Yeah, what do I want to look at? Like, show me." Or, "Oh." I'm really sorry. I hated that paragraph and cut it out. I didn't, I didn't know you needed it or vice versa. Oh, I'm really sorry. I meant to say that and I didn't write, get around to writing it. Like we're very, very intimately tied to the writing of their books. And I think in particular in, um, in like the, the chefy chef world, so many of these people came up in a way where, you know, they may have worked at different restaurants and try to learn what they could learn, but feel like they got, a huge part of their culinary education through reading cookbooks and collecting cookbooks. I know so many chefs who, like, if you go to their home, like, here's my cookbook collection, it'll just be enormous because that's the thing that really, look, you, you were cooking and working for like $4.25 an hour plus your $6 overtime. You're not, you know, and you're working six and a half days a week. You didn't have your whole life and all the resources to go out and eat all different foods. So like they saw the world through cookbooks. And so they have an extraordinary dedication to the form mm -hmm. of the cookbook. And so they feel like when it's time for me to write my cookbook, I'm going to do it right. It doesn't matter how busy I am. What about the non-chefs? Because you worked with on Chrissy Teigen's cookbook recently. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that was a huge seller. And it's actually gotten yeah. great. I've, I've eaten some of the food. It's very good. But, like, I mean, that's, like, the prototypical non-chef cookbook, right? I mean, like, sure. what, was, what was that like? You sure. know? So, I mean, there are definitely cookbooks that are clearly, you know, celebrity brand extensions. Yeah. And, you know, no shade on them. Like, you know, if you're a fan of that person, you just feel like, I want to get every angle into that person like you know that person is like my avatar in the world i'm trying to like pull their weird like cookbook skin over my head <laughs> <laughs> because that meant something to someone <laughs> or you know what i mean like if you're just a super fan and you want to be down like okay you buy the cookbook and like that, that, that meant something to you that's fine yeah, yeah. like i've got no mm -hmm. you know i've got no um problem with that like th those aren't the books i work on but that's yeah. fine chrissy is a you know, it's funny because she's a celebrity cookbook author. She was obviously a celebrity and then became a cookbook author and then became more famous because she was a great cookbook author. Mm -hmm. And she, I mean, dude, when I worked on that book, her co-writer moved in with her. Wow. Lived in her house for months 
and they woke up and cooked every day and I was getting texts from them and like I, I flew out to like meet with them for a weekend and it was like some like insane like Chrissy Teigen John Legend weekend where like I was gonna see them in LA and then like I got a text like two days before it's like actually you know John is doing some celebrity benefit thing in Napa can you like change your ticket and I was like my life isn't really like that dude. <laughs> <laughs> like change fees matter to me <laughs> um, but like Oh, it's like, oh, what time are you landing in LA? Blah, 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 blah. It turns out, okay, well, you can just meet them in the airport and we'll fly together. I was like, yeah, that doesn't solve my problem. <laughs> <laughs> Buying a second plane ticket me. doesn't make it. And they're like, oh, no, you can just get on their plane. I was like, what? <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> oh, oh, get on their plane. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. it was awesome. <laughs> uh, Being hands on was fantastic. It was rad. Yeah. No, and John like came out and yeah. like tipped the people who. You know, tip the people who brought the luggage up himself. Oh, wow. Like, they're, like, really cool people. Like, okay. really, really cool people. Um, so, anyway, so I spent the weekend with them. And uh, and Adina Sussman, who's Chrissy's collaborator, um, had, like, a family thing and actually had to not be there. So, I was there for two days. And Chrissy and I cooked for two days. Hmm. And it was, like, her and me in the kitchen. And, like, yes, some, like, totally insane delivery of groceries for two days. Which is, like piled in the fridge. Oh, we don't need another fridge. Is there another fridge in this house? We just pile them in. And we're like, do we want to try doing like a raspberry thing? We're like, we got raspberries. It's cool. We got an entire grocery store here. But yeah, and Chrissy and I cooked for two days. And that's how eight of the recipes in the book, you know, came to be. And, you know, so she was intimately, intimately involved in that book. And I think for her, it's funny, I said this whole thing about chefs before. I think she's that person too, where she feels like, I mean, at this point, she obviously didn't grow up this way, but at this point, like, she could go and eat the food of any chef in the world she wanted to probably tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, she saw so much of the world that she loved and aspired to through her cookbooks. And when it came time for her to write one, this is my favorite Chrissy story. Uh, I actually first reached out to her Oh, okay. And say, hey, would you want to write a cookbook? So you're- because I like saw her on Instagram and saw that she tweeted. Like, I first knew of her because she was just so funny on Twitter. Um, and then I, I saw that she would like Instagram a lot from like what she was cooking for dinner and stuff like that. I was like, oh, hey, you know, would you, would you ever think about writing a cookbook? And she actually said to me, oh my god, I would love to, but I don't have any cred. And I don't. No, really, I don't have any cred. I have no. Basically, said like I have no business writing a cookbook. Like, I'm not a chef. I'm not trained. No one should buy a cookbook from me. So that may have actually been a good sign. It was a great <laughs> sign. A great sign. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, wow. Like, this is someone who, like, would take it seriously if she were to ever do it. And we actually got to the point where she, and a few years later, in fact, she was like, you know what? I actually do think I have something to say. And what that something is, is, you know, I have all these fans on Instagram and on Twitter and stuff who always tweet back at me and say, like, oh my God, I've never cooked before, but I really want to cook because I see you cook and I think it's cool. And she's like, oh, like it's like this totally normal thing that I do. I'm not going to be great at it, but if I can help inspire people to cook who have never done it before and they can feel that joy and they can feel like this is something they can do for themselves and do for their family or whatever, like I'd feel like I've done something good in the world. Um, and that's the conversation we actually had when it came time for her to say like, okay, let's, let's do this thing. All right. I think with that, Everyone here, thank you so much for coming out to 
Brooklyn, you are awesome. Give yourselves a huge round of applause. We love you all. Um, this is, yeah, I, I apologize that you're going to have to like listen to this thing all over again on Slate Money in a couple of weeks. You will <laughs> relive the magic. Relive yeah. the magic. Um, fast forward to the good bits. You'll know where they are. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for coming out. And um, go check out the bar because they need your custom in this very sexy, old-fashioned bar place, which I'm sure Teddy wants, would, would love to have come up with. <laughs> thank you. Hi, Slate Money listeners. This is producer Dan just jumping in with a quick correction. A couple weeks ago, during the numbers round, Anna noted that the air pollution reading in Delhi was 969 micrograms per cubic meter, and Felix stated that's about one gram per cubic meter. In fact, he should have said it's about one milligram per cubic meter, so we'd just like to issue that correction. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.